this conversation about gender, I think, is way bigger than just roles in the church yeah. or roles in the home. To me, those questions honestly are a little bit boring. Um, they just are. I, I don't want to. I don't hope I don't step on any toes or offend you. I think you get the tone of what I'm saying. I think gender, just in general, is super interesting. There's mm-hmm. a lot more to be thought about and understood. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And this is the Christ and Culture podcast. In today's Christ and Culture conversation, Dr. Quinn will talk with Jordan Stefaniak about gender. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. So Monday, February the 21st is President's Day. Dr. Keithley, I don't need to tell our audience you're a little bit older than I am, only two or three or four years or so. But who is your favorite president and why? We're asking you because you've experienced more of them than I have. Yeah, well, that's, you've at least voted for more than that, I have. I, that's that's <laughs> no doubt true. When we think about the presidents of the United States, uh, we have to remember that they were um, men of their time uh, and for good and for ill. And so we always have to then evaluate them in that way. Um, some of our presidents were larger than life. I think of Andrew Jackson or Teddy Roosevelt. And so when they did something good, it was amazing and wonderful. Whenever they made bad decisions, it really had consequences. I think of Andrew Jackson and the Trail of Tears. He's just going to have to own that, and that's problematic in his legacy. But we, we recognize this about these men. Uh, some of our presidents that we've had in our history uh, were simply incompetent. Uh, no one, I think, would have a high opinion. I think most historians would say that James Buchanan was not a good president, and because of some of his decisions, may have brought on the Civil War as it happened. Um, others were very brilliant but flawed. And I'm thinking now of someone like Richard Nixon. No one ever called him stupid. Uh, he, was, he, was a, he, he was brilliant in many ways. But unfortunately, he had some character flaws that uh, uh, was his downfall. And so he's the only president we've had that's had to resign uh, because of the scandals. Um, so if you ask me who are who is my favorite president, I have two, and and I I'll just admit, you know, I'm a fanboy for George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Um, uh, Washington gave us the country that we have, and and I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration, because there were those who wanted. I mean, a- Alexander Hamilton wanted to make him a monarch, and uh, I think he could have um, uh, if he wanted. The country was his. And yet he very wisely and very graciously made, made, made the point to be called simply Mr. President when he could have been so much more. And so he gave us uh, the country that we have in so many ways. And then Abraham Lincoln saved the country that we have in so many ways. I, I would not wish on my worst enemy what he went through uh, in his presidency uh, to deal with the Civil War. And he had... Uh, the stress of that war. He had stresses in every way imaginable, whether it was his family or his cabinet. Uh, I just I just can't imagine what it must have been like to go through what he did. In fact, there's some interesting 
photos that you can see online if you want to, where they show the before and after of his presidency, where he comes in the presidency looking like a man that he was, a man just entering into middle age, and by the and four years later, he's aged. It looks like 20 to 30 years. And so we owe a debt of gratitude to both of those men. And so I do appreciate both Washington and Lincoln. So a lot of things we could say here, Dr. Keithley, but for Christians, how, how do we even evaluate a president? Do we, do we call a president great because he or she navigated tough waters? Do we call a president great um, because they were able to advance a certain agenda socially or morally or something else, or just they were able to kind of hold things together. How do we even, what kind of criteria from a Christian perspective might we use in evaluating a great president? Yeah, well, typically um, what made a president great were circumstances often beyond their control in that they were thrust into um, the events of world history. Um, I'm thinking of uh, FDR having to deal with the mm-hmm. Great Depression and then World War II, whereas other presidents uh, were presidents during times of relative uh, prosperity and peace. So that's a hard one. Uh, I would say that when we talk about evaluating greatness, obviously they were able to navigate very difficult things because they had the requisite skills and they had the requisite character. Mm. Uh, And so I think that there are other honorable mentions that come to mind whenever we talk about men who are able to navigate. They they understood the time in which they were in, and they managed it well. I think think Ronald Reagan did that. Hmm. If you could take any of our presidents of the past and make them president forever, who would you pick? Oh, well, that, the very man that said he wouldn't, and that would be George, George Washington. Washington. But if you ask me, who would you want to go, you know, who would you want to have dinner with? Teddy Roosevelt in a heartbeat. <laughs> why, is, why is that? Why oh, dinner with was, Teddy? He, he, he enjoyed life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he enjoyed himself. Few topics are more contested in our culture now than gender. Now more than ever, Christians need to be clear about what Scripture says regarding gender and how we make sense of it. To help us make sense of this topic, we have with us today Jordan Stefaniak. Let me say that again, Stefaniak. Did I say that right? Yeah, Stefaniak like Pontiac. I like don't think Pontiac. they make cars anymore. But. <laughs> they, they do make those cars, I think. Maybe not. They don't make them anymore? Okay. Jordan is a Ph.D. student in philosophy. Uh, really more philosophical theology at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, In the UK, they call it Birmingham. He's also co-founder of the London Lyceum, which is a weekly podcast and an online center for analytic Baptist and confessional theology. He works full-time in the finance industry, and to cap it off, he's also a doctoral research fellow here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Uh, Suffice it to say, he's a busy guy. He's also married with a couple of young people, uh, one of whom I know kept him up most of the night last night, so we'll forgive him for delayed answers. Jordan, thanks for talking with us today. I am pumped to be here. This is exciting. All right, let's jump right in. Jordan, you and I have talked a lot about this over the last couple of years, but uh, in your research, which is both uh, academic and kind of popular level, this area of, of what is the human being, we call this anthropology in the fancy terms, but more specifically, gender and sexuality is really a core focus for you. To start with, Why is that of great interest for you? I've always found the area just interesting to begin with, and I think it's only become more interesting, for me at least, is because I grew up in conservative context, and I think as the years have unfolded, you continue to see more and more 
uh, shifting cultural opinions on these sort of topics. Where I think when I grew up, I don't know how, you know, first couple of years of my life going on, even in my teens, there's a general consensus. And now there seems to be completely no consensus whatsoever. There's all sorts of ideas on, on sex and gender. And I always thought the Bible was pretty clear on a lot of these topics. And yet there's a lot of people that are questioning it and asking questions. And I like to think, I like to ask questions. And so it just became a, a pretty interesting area for me. And then I got into it through my work in anthropology. So just, it was part of anthropology. And I read an article by my friend Felipe Dovale, who was, he wrote a piece on, can a male savior save women? And as I read that, and I started following all the different uh, sources there, it just became this whole really interesting world of all this interesting work that's being done. Mm. Uh, so I get a, an idea of why people are thinking the way they think. Mm. Because if you follow gender, you're going to realize there's a lot of crazy stuff that's being said. A lot of stuff that I think if you were, if you asked a normal person in, in a regular Southern Baptist church, what do you think about gender? And you told them what s- some of the academic philosophy is saying, they would think, wow, that's nuts. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's fascinating, though. It's interesting. It's helpful to understand culture in general. It's un- helpful to understand people. I mean, I think if you go to a school today, you're going to ask, these These are the questions that are being asked of students. And if you go to any church, yeah. if you go to any public school, which yep. I suppose is what you're referencing, I'm, I mean, I think about my own kids uh, my two olders are in middle school, and within the first few weeks of their being back in a public school this year, they were being asked, are you bisexual, are yep. you non-binary, what pronouns do you prefer, all these kinds of things that you and I just didn't have to grow up thinking about, nor did, nor did anybody else in the history of, of uh, the civilization. Uh, that said, real quick, where are you from? What is your background, briefly? Yeah, so I grew up in primarily the Midwest. So I have I lived in Nashville for a couple of years, but primarily St. Louis area, both sides of the river. Uh, my family, most of my family, is still in Illinois on the on the east side of St. Louis. Grew up Southern Baptist context. Uh, I think all the churches that my my dad's a pastor. He's been a pastor various. You know, he's just been a senior pastor, been associate pastor. I think he's the pastor of care and recovery right now mm-hmm. at a local church. And so I grew up. Knowing the church, loving the church, went on to, to college thinking I was going to do business sort of stuff. I really wanted to work for ESPN for probably the first, I don't know, 15 to 20 years of my life. I mean, I just, you could tell, ask me anything about sports and I give you the statistic. Don't, don't count it out, man. Hang in there. You might make it. You're, you're, I mean, you've got a pretty popular podcast. Well, so you know, growing up, way. there was that cool thing on ESPN they did where you could become a sports anchor. Like you went through this yeah. whole, there was that whole show. I don't remember the guy who went and did. What's the, I don't even know anymore. It, Tony Cor- no, not Tony Kornheiser. Well, that's low on it. It's what's his name? I don't, know. I don't remember. It's a young guy. I'll have to look it up after this. But there was a show, and I was obsessed with it. I was like, I'm going to be that guy and be on ESPN. The Lord sort of changed that direction for me, and I decided I want to go to seminary. So I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. From there, did a THM here at Southeastern, and my whole family. I guess not my whole family. Well, obviously my whole family moved here. Me, my wife, and my two kids. And now we live in Wake Forest and doing a Ph.D. At, at the University of Birmingham. So I think that's a little bit about how I got here. And of all the topics that one could focus on, um, it's hard for me to think of a topic that could go uh, more deeply in the sort of theoretical and academic realm while also remaining as relevant and practical for pastors and just ordinary Christians and lay people today. So that said, let's let's dive into a couple of um I know that there's a lot of background and baggage even to these terms, but let's just sort out some terms. Is sex and gender the same thing in these conversations today? So I think if you ask 
most people at your church, is there a difference between sex and gender? You're going to get the answer, no. I think their intuitions are right, but when we're talking about these terms, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. So I think these, these are two different concepts, and that's not a bad thing. That's not something that's being revisionary. That's not something that's changing the traditional norms on, on sex and gender. They're just, they just mean different things. Mm-hmm. So sex is a bi- biological term. So you think of hormones, you think of your, your actual physical makeup, you think of all the things that are traditionally that go along with biological properties. That's what sex is about. Gender, on the other hand, is not a biological thing. It's, it's, a, it's a social property, and that's not a bad thing either. It's just describing what it is. Mm-hmm. So you think of norms and positions and, and behavioral traits uh, even self-ascriptions are typically what go under the gender category. So you think the, the example that always comes up is like the 1950s sort of house arrangement where the man goes out and works and, and the wife stays home, uh, mm-hmm. keeps her feet in the kitchen at all times. That's a gender sort of thing. It's, it's the way you're performing in your life. It's not necessarily a, a biological thing. It may be connected to biology, and I, I think it is. But these terms are two distinct terms. So sex is talking about your physical, biological makeup. So you have an X or Y chromosome, uh, whereas gender is talking about social properties, how you act in the world. So this is why then, correct me if I'm wrong, when we hear the language of gender today, it's quite common for it to be associated with fluidity. So Mm -hmm. gender fluidity, that's not sexual fluidity. In other words, and we're talking about these as the terms and how they're kind of used popularly right now, both in culture, Mm -hmm. media, school, educational, the way that it's sort of being worked into or kind of baked into even policy and and school systems, Um, that it's not about sexual fluidity. In other words, it's not about do I have boy parts or girl parts physically. Mm -hmm. It's more about which one do I most identify with, and the gender is the one that can be a little more flexible and fluid. Is that right, the way the words are being used? Sometimes. So it it gets really confusing really fast because depending on who you're talking to, they're going to have different opinions on it. But I think having these two conceptual distinctions, understanding these are distinct terms that mean distinct things, they may be linked in some way, is helpful for categorizing and understanding how people are using it. So depending on who you're talking to, they may think there is truly a sexual fluidity uh, where it's not just, uh, I mean, male and female. That's, I mean, it's pretty common in most academic literature to say now there's a spectrum on the sexual uh, range as well. But I think if you look at the science, there are intersex examples, but those are uh, outliers and the vast majority are very clearly either male or female. There is just two groups. Yeah. And gender, though, is the one that can be a little more fluid, I guess you could say. So, I mean, I think if you have long hair as a man, does that make you feminine? If you have um, short hair as a female, does that make you masculine? If you like to lift weights as a female, does that make you mm-hmm. masculine? So the masculine, feminine, gender terms, male, female, sex terms. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. when you start getting into these conversations and you know the terms, it helps you decipher what people are saying and what mm-hmm. they're trying to convey. Most of the time, like you said, it is gender fluidity. I feel more at home uh, with masculine sort of things, or I feel more at home with feminine sort of traits. Yeah. All right, so how do we sort out then? Because thus far, we're talking about how these words are used culturally. Mm-hmm. But what about how these words are used and meant biblically? Is there a difference biblically between sex and gender? How would you sort that out? Obviously, I think when you come to the Bible, it, it's, not, it's not an instruction manual. 
It's not even it's not a philosophical textbook. It's not a systematic theology textbook. Uh, and there's good news to that because that requires us to actually wrestle with the text, to grow, to understand, to be dependent upon the Spirit. So there's there's good news in the fact that it's not that, but it's difficult. So the Bible does track with two distinct categories, but it's it's not always clear to understand how they're together, how they're different. I do think the Bible is pretty clear that, you know, from the very beginning you read Genesis, male and female. So it's, it's very clear that you have a male sex and a female sex. These are the two types, uh, and they are the two biological types. And then it becomes complicated from there. Yeah, because uh, yeah. so, so, my immediate questions then become, and I, and I certainly see how it's complicated, but then we want, I suppose part of what we're after are, where are the moral boundaries yeah, here? Yeah. So the second that we, we affirm Scripture, there's male, there's female, those things are, are pretty well cemented as yeah. we're born. Um, but then where, where are the sort of moral boundaries between, okay, well, is it merely a cultural phenomenon uh, that, generally speaking, men lift weights and are more interested in that kind of stuff that we tend to think of as masculine versus uh, women who may be more into tea parties and something yeah. like, you know, I'm just making stuff yeah. up here. But these, are, these seem to be kind of cultural manifestations. But do they reflect gender? Do they reflect sex? And when, when do we start to draw sort of moral boundaries and categories? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that is the million-dollar question, right? So I think in today's context, I think it's pretty normal for a, a woman to out-earn a man mm-hmm. uh, in, in different segments. I mean, I, you think in your own family, your wife might make more money than you, and you could stay home with the kids. Is that, is that transgressing mm-hmm. some sort of yeah. moral boundary from the Scriptures? And I, I don't know. Uh, personally, I, I am a hardline complementarian, not not in the sense of being a jerk about it, not in the <laughs> sense of saying like a a man can't ask for directions from a woman. Yeah, yeah. But in the sense of the ecclesiastical office of pastor is only for biological men and that men are given the task to lead in the home. So I think that's unequivocally clear in the biblical text, at least from my vantage point. I don't see how you get around it. I think 1 Timothy 2, I just personally, I have no idea how you get around that Mm. uh, without violating at least my conscience, and as well as, I think, the large swath of Christian tradition. I mean, it's not like this is something that's been debated Mm -hmm. for 2,000 years of how how to practice it. But when it gets into the practical do's and don'ts, I just don't know if we have a clear set of rules. There are some things, you know, the text in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 22, 5 maybe, where it talks about um, it's an abomination for a man to, to dress as a woman and a woman to dress as a man sort of thing. But I think the idea behind that is not necessarily, well, if you're Scottish and you wore a kilt, then you're an abomination before mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of in your own cultural context, do not portray that you are a different biological sex than you yeah. are. Yeah. So I think in our context, I mean, a, a man could have long hair, and no one's going to think, well, you're trying to be feminine. You're trying to be presented as a—you're actually trying to change your physical makeup to be something that you're not. So that's a great example. I mean, Paul sp- explicitly says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Yeah. And are you, are you interpreting that as— that's a sort of cultural manifestation of someone who is intentionally trying to, in that in that time and place, intentionally trying to indicate something other than their biological sex. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know how how else do you get around something. Samson, yeah, in, in the Old Testament, he's he's took a Nazarite vow. He's got long hair. Are we going to then go and say, well, he was actually trying to be feminine? I, I don't think anyone 
yeah. would imagine or pretend or confuse Samson for being feminine. It's interesting you bring up the Deuteronomy passage. There's a sweet, sweet lady in our church, older lady, uh, who's, who's been widowed now for a number of years. And she brought up this just in her ordinary Bible reading. Yeah. She came across this, this verse, this passage, and, and then uh, our, one of our associate ministers called her to check on her, just seeing how she was doing. And she said, I need to ask you a question. I'm thinking about throwing away every pair of pants that I have because I'm afraid that I'm not being faithful to Scripture. Yeah, is, yeah. That, is that right or wrong? And we we kind of chuckle about that, but she was so serious about and it because she doesn't want to to do anything to transgress what's clear in Scripture. Yeah. But there but there's some sort of hermeneutical work to be done yeah. here to understand. I that. think that's a good intuition. Yeah. So yeah. a good intuition to look at the Scriptures and say, I want to believe and do what it says. I may not understand it, but yeah. I want to follow it to my best of my ability. So I'm yeah. not going to patronize anyone who has a little bit more strict view than I do. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a little bit more freedom in how things cash out than others. But I, I think we should. Uh, this I think this gets into the you know the Romans fourteen sort of context mm-hmm. of conscience discussion mm-hmm. when it comes to thinking about well what can men and women do or not do. But I think we need to be careful and clear when we get into these discussions because oftentimes we are putting um, undue weight on certain things that shouldn't be there. Yeah. So I, I think oftentimes pastors feel like well we need to champion a Christian sexual ethic. And then they hammer home the wrong things. Like what? So they're going to hammer home particular, I guess, you know, who there's lots of pastors who talk about like the the boys who's like a dad mom or something, you know, if he's stayed at home with the kids more often than, than, than the wife. I think that's the wrong thing to be hammering home on. Now, yes, you, men should take responsibility. Yeah, that, that's let's not take that away. But the stuff you should be hammering home on is uh, sexual immorality. Uh, whether that is um, sex before marriage or homosexuality or any of those things. So I, th- I think all of those in this bucket of sexual immorality is something you should be focusing more on. Pornography, mm. uh, those sort of issues are all far more important uh, than determining and, and offering a binding someone's conscience on certain practices of how often you can be at home as a dad or how often you can be out of the house as a mom. I mean, how much are you allowed to work in an office? Where's that line? Is it 17 hours a week? Is it 15 hours a week? I don't think we should be putting prescriptions on people Mm. in those areas. I think we should be much more develop the virtues. So be kind and patient and, and caring and loving. And if you're doing those things, I think there's a lot more freedom in how you're doing it. As long as you're not pretending uh, to be a sex that you are not, yeah, I, I think you're in pretty safe grounds. So with that, so in a, in a recent blog on our Christ and Culture blog, you you talked about gender is really more about Christian love than anything else. So tell me, I have kind of two questions yeah. about that. One, just summarize your, your main point or points in that article, but also why did you say gender is more about Christian love than sex or sexuality is about Christian love? Maybe start with the yeah. second and then ease into this to the first. I mean, sure, you can say sex is uh, is about Christian love, but typically we don't think of our our body parts as specially like designed for Christian love. It is, but that's not something we can really fundamentally change. I mean, I, I, my hand can be designed for Christian love because it can be used to serve people. It can be used to to shovel things, but. Typically, that's just not what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on the things that we're actually doing and acting on, thinking, which is where gender comes in, because it's the social property. It's how I'm functioning in the world. So when I think of it as about love, I mean, I'm riffing off my friend Felipe. 
So he, he's argued that gender is the appropriation of social goods according to the sex body. Say that one more time. So gender is... Gender is the appropriation of social goods according to the sex body. Okay. At which, where the means of appropriation is primarily through what one loves. So I think the idea that's getting behind this is that our gender is about how we're living in the world in our particular sexed body. So as a, I mean, I just think of myself as a man, as a male, I am a father. The way I am loving and treating my children is gendered. Mm-hmm. I'm gendered as a man. That's why I'm a father. That's why I'm not a mother. So I think the way that I'm loving the, my kids is particularly in a gendered way. And that's fundamentally about how I'm loving them, what I'm loving. So as a male, what do I love? Well, I, I love my children in particular gendered masculine ways. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, I, the only thing I can do is wrestle with them. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean the only thing I can do is um, be the chief authority figure or something like that. I can be the one that is gentle and soft and loving. And I think you see that the Apostle Paul ascribes himself uh, as a loving, nursing mother. Yeah. Uh, and that's not him transgressing some creative norm, uh, because you see everybody, whether you're a male or a female, is called to, to be in these particular virtues as Christians. So there's not like distinctively feminine or distinctively masculine virtues out there, but I think there's ways that it ends up getting produced that are gendered based upon, as a male, I mean, I have more testosterone than a female. So the way that I'm in the world and that I'm, uh, I'm acting in it is going to be gendered as a man. Hmm. So it goes beyond that. I'm, I'm just trying to tease this out a little more on um, the gendered function yeah. of, uh, of the dad. So are you saying yeah. then that our, the function, the way in which we, you've talked about the way in which we function in the world, in this case in our families, the way in which we function in our families, in our own sexed bodies, that our function ought to correspond in some way to yeah. our bodies? There is a correspondence I there? think so. So the, there's people who would want to say that there is, is no correspondence. And I think you can do that and still be orthodox, traditional Christian about uh, sexual norms and everything. So I don't want to say anathematize people who disagree with that. But I do mm-hmm. think that there is a connection. Uh, I, I don't know how you get around uh, the way creation is portrayed in the, the opening narrative of Genesis, the way that Paul speaks of the household codes. I mean, I just, I don't know how you get there without having some sort of connection. And I think the science shows that there's a connection. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the science, every single cell of your body is sexed in a particular way and does influence you to act in certain ways. So let me ask you this. If, um, if it came down to really trying to put some some uh, just some hooks to hang our hat on here with respect to genders and particularly masculine genders you're you're talking about this as a father um i've often told this to my boys um look dads men in general but dads in particular we need to lead well we need to provide and we need to protect Mm -hmm. now that doesn't and there's more to it but i I don't i don't think less than that Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean dictatorial (laughs) that doesn't mean that i'm the only one that works and mommy has to stay home yeah um, that doesn't mean that I, you know, sleep next to the door with a, an, an uh, assault rifle or something like that either. None of the, these are sort of extreme and over-masculinized, I think, perverted versions yeah. of what masculinity looks like. At the same time, I often go back to uh, 
you know, when the Lord comes into the garden looking for the perpetrators, he comes looking for Adam first. Mm -hmm. I realize some people would say, hey, man, that's such an antiquated view or such a patriarchal view. And that's exactly what's going on. And I, and I often maybe read too far into my own family here. But if the Lord were, were coming to my garden and, and looking for the perpetrator, even if it wasn't me, I feel like I'm the one that's responsible. But I don't. that doesn't mean that I have to make the most money. It doesn't mean I have to be dictatorial. But it does mean that I need to sort of take the lead and, and just be ultimately responsible for leading, providing for, and protecting, and other things too. But in my family, those things. And that seems to correspond. That sort of gender function seem to cor- seems to correspond even with my sexed body. But is that am I overthinking no, that? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what the Baptist faith and message tells us. It gives us this, this, this what the guide, provide, protect sort of the mm-hmm. structure. That's the terminology used. Um, and I think it, it's it was especially clear in like agrarian cultures where a man has the muscular ability to go lift the bricks and to pick up the things and to get the oxen to move. It's obviously become more democratized yeah. in our in our current society. But that doesn't take away uh, some of the, the guiding, I guess, biological principles that I think are underneath each and every one of us. Yeah. Whether we try to hide from them or, or, or avoid them or even feel ashamed of them sometimes, that doesn't change how God created us. Yeah. So even in our own society, yeah, I still think those are fundamentally responsibilities uh, uh, of the male husband in the household, the male father. So I, I don't think this necessarily completely corresponds in other society of how the moral norms look uh, for what a man and a woman do in, in a organization. If you both work together, mm-hmm. uh, you can have a woman boss mm-hmm. who's the one making the decisions for you. And I don't think you're transgressing any moral norms. Yeah, that, from no, doing that's, that. that's an important distinction. And this is where we get into there's there's different economies for different yeah. sort of creative and cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. The family is one kind of cultural institution yeah. as ordained by God. Um, a business is something else. A body politic is something else. The church is something else. And each of those tend to, they kind of have their own economies and way of operation. And each of those need to be considered um, in general, but also with respect to, to gender and sexuality, which is probably another podcast. Yeah. But in any case, it's important to make those kind of distinctions in yeah. these sort of cultural spheres, as it were. So with respect to this, this sexuality and gender thing, um, so one of, the, one of the places that culture, and this is where it's being litigated, it's being sort of baked into policy and practice, even in, in public education, uh, the fluidity of pronouns. Yeah. So I'm just curious your thoughts on I mean, How would you advise uh, ordinary Christians, especially even maybe Christians who are in uh, teenagers that are in mm-hmm. public schools or in colleges that are being forced and yeah. expected to to sort of ask the pronouns, and then even if you know you're talking to a, a sexual male, but they prefer female pronouns, how do, you, how do you advise people in that? You're putting me on the hot seat. Uh, so I remember the first time I was really in a situation where I had to interact with that. So I was at a course at the University of Louisville, and you know, first I put on your personal pronoun. I was like, whoa, this is different. This is not what I'm used to. Um, I personally, I think you can typically 99% of the time navigate through that without having to hit that hot button issue by calling people by their names. So I look at you and I'd call you Benjamin. I'm not going to give the pronoun. I'm not going to say he, him, her, or any of those. I'm just going to avoid that question altogether because I think personally, going bringing your arms to battle in that situation is not going to persuade anyone. It's not going to convince anyone. 
and it's not going to do anything good in any way. It's it's just it just going provokes the conversation. Oh yeah. yeah. So it's just going to become a, a battle, where yeah. I think we want to persuade people and change their minds. So I want to have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I tell them that don't tell them you know this is wrong to do this or this is right to do it in this way. You can get there. Uh, you don't have to hide from those things. You don't have to be a coward. Mm-hmm. But y- you. We are supposed to be as, as what, innocent as doves and as shrewd as a serpent. And I don't think we are being shrewd as serpents when we just come in with our our sword and try to chop away on day one. There's a way to handle it. So I can be completely honest in what I think about, call you by your first name, get to know you a little bit, talk to you, become your friend, disarm you a little bit, and then we can actually have that conversation. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So... Names are better anyway. You know, yeah. far too often we hide behind pronouns because we can't remember the person's name. Right. So maybe love That's them right. enough to remember their name. That's a great point. If there were one book, Jordan, that um, that anyone, layperson or academic or anybody in between, were to read just to get a little more clarity on this, what would you recommend? <laughs> I don't know if I have a good answer right now. So there are, I think, particular academic treatments that are actually really helpful. Most of them are written by feminists. Mm. So as long as you're okay reading that, um, I mean, I wouldn't give this right to your church member uh, in most circumstances unless they were really smart and knew what they were doing and knew how to discern different things. But, I mean, I think Charlotte Witt's The Metaphysics of Gender is a really helpful piece to thinking about what is gender, how does it look. You don't have to agree with all our conclusions to glean a lot from it. So I, I probably, I mean, that's a short book from Oxford, too. It's only like 150 pages or so. Probably go there. My friend Felipe, he, he's going to come out with a book eventually on this, his dissertation. It's like 500 words. It's massive, but it, it's so, so helpful, I think, in understanding uh, gender in this context. I, I don't agree with everything he says, but I would recommend his work uh, partially because of what he's saying, but also because of the posture that he's doing it. Mm, yeah. Uh, so yeah. he's deeply within the, the great Christian tradition, defending an Augustinian, if you know, Augustine, uh, his version of understanding the human person, tries to develop that. Uh, but it, the way he does it is in a disarming, humble, uh, winsome way that I would, whenever that comes out, uh, I would highly commend that. Yeah, so that seems to even highlight that there's a lot of work to be done. Oh, yeah. All the more reason to consider um, here at the Center for Faith and Culture, we have a three-year focus on anthropology, what we're calling theological anthropology. Um, So we've got a lot more of these discussions uh, to be had. So, um, Jordan, also just to commend uh, not only your work, but the way in which you go about your work. Um, Even as you've said here, look, there's some things that, that we have to be pretty dogmatic about. But there's a lot of other areas where we just need to be charitable, yeah. uh, and that's really, really helpful. You do a good job with that on your podcast, too. Uh, tell us a little bit about London Lyceum and the podcast. Sure, and before I do that, I just want to remind you, this conversation about gender, I think, is way bigger than just roles in the church yeah. or roles in the home. To me, those questions, honestly, are a little bit boring. Um, they just are. I, I don't want to, uh, I don't hope I don't step on any toes or offend you. I think you get the tone of what I'm saying. I think gender just in general is super interesting. There's mm-hmm. a lot more to be thought about and understood. Now, the podcast, it started out as a podcast, what, two and a half years ago, now as the date of this recording. And it was just me and my friend Brandon Askew. We were just like, hey, let's, let's do a podcast. And it was a, really a throwaway comment. And then we decided to do it just for fun. And it really grew and it was a lot of fun. So I found that I like interviewing people asking questions of all sorts of different types of people and learning. So we ask all kinds of people to come on our podcast, 
people who we completely disagree with in every sense of the word asked to come on because I think we want to model charity. I think we want to model curiosity. But we also want to model some critical thinking and what we call cheerful confessionalism. So I'm a confessional Baptist. Find uh, different there's all these awesome resources in the Baptist tradition, from the New Hampshire Confession to the Abstract of Principles to the Second London Confession and the First London Confession, and we find those really, really helpful in navigating matters of theology and practice. But oftentimes when people grab onto these things, for some reason it just makes us angry, and we want to model a different posture. Yeah. So we try to get people that agree with us, that disagree with us, and pick your brain like, okay, why do you think that? Uh, tell me more about that, or I don't understand that, or I don't follow that. Give me some understanding here. So it's not like a traditional, just formal debate. It's more of a curious posture of, I'm interested, and I want to understand. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to yeah. attack you, but I am going to ask you questions and try to learn. And it's grown to more than that. We do a lot of book reviews on our website now, uh, thelondonlyceum.com, which is a lot of fun. I write a lot of long-form book reviews, like 6,000-word book reviews, because I just— Overly verbose, I guess, but it, it's fun. We've got some cool roundtable events where we're getting different people with different views to come talk about stuff. So we got one on, on political theology coming up uh, with a couple guys who, some guys who want to say, yes, there should be like a state church. Mm-hmm. And they got some traditional Baptists saying, no, that separation of church and state. So I'm excited to learn from them and to, to get glean some from how they go about it. But we want to model a posture where we can say we are friends, Christian brothers and sisters, and yet we can disagree seriously, mm-hmm. deeply about things without resorting to sort of tactics that make each other look like demons in yeah. some sense. Yeah, you guys do a good job with that. It's so fun. I love that some some of my favorite podcasts that you guys have are the ones with people that I know that you vehemently disagree with because just watching you handle that well, it's really, really well done. Now, you talk about Baptist confessionalism. Um, many of our listeners are not familiar with that language, yeah. um, but that would be especially someone who's who's uh, intentionally rooted in some of our confession. You mentioned yeah. New Hampshire, but there's the London Baptist Confession, mm-hmm. even the Second London Baptist mm-hmm. Confession, which some people popularly have these tattoos of the 1689 Confession on their arms. I'm curious if you have that. Are I you don't, that because it was it was really penned in 1677. That's true. If you want to be a nerd. That's true. So, that's true. Uh, but the 1689 <laughs> has tattoos. That's the, They do have tattoos. All right, so next time you're in, you'll have to show us your, your I have tattoo. no tattoo <laughs> of the 1689. I don't have a tattoo either. I guess that would... <laughs> no tattoos at all. No that's tattoo- our next podcast yeah. is Anthropology and Tattoos. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern tell us what they're reading right now. So, Dr. David Jones, what's on your bookshelf? You know, Ken, I um, struggled with um, uh, choosing a book. I've got so many. Uh, And so I chose one that might be a little bit unexpected. It's actually a Christian biography uh, that is titled The Bold Evangelist. 
the life and ministry of Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon. This is a book by Priscilla Wong, a brand new book just came out about two months back. Uh, and it's just a, an incredibly encouraging biography uh, that I've been, been working through the past month or so. A name that probably a lot of folks hadn't heard of before, Selina of, of Hastings. But you probably have heard of the 18th century evangelist pastors, uh, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, uh, and others who were invo- involved in uh, the Great Revival during that time period. And Selina was uh, essentially the money behind that English revival that took place. Uh, and just an incredible biography uh, about a, a woman of God, part of the nobility there uh, in the UK, who uh, came to know Christ uh, and resolved to use her resources, to use her political connections, uh, to use uh, her social standing, all for Christ, uh, and literally poured in her day uh, millions and millions uh, of you know, pounds, uh, you know, dollars for us, uh, into financing the revival, building chapels, uh, starting pastors' colleges, uh, paying the salaries uh, of itinerant evangelists, uh, and really sort of just an unknown name that God raised up to finance the gospel. Uh, and it was it's such an encouraging read to me because it, it has brought to my mind the fact you know that most faithful Christians throughout history uh, have and will toil away without ever being known, right? Uh, but they are as important uh, as the big names that we, we do know. Uh, you know, Billy Graham, Danny Aiken, uh, Ken Keithley, right? <laughs> There's, there, there was someone behind the voice uh, in the pulpit, behind the author. Uh, and, you know, whenever I read uh, Christian biographies, uh, missionaries, great, uh, great people of God in the past, you know, my heart always just sings as I read. And, and though these folks, many of them are long gone, you know, my heart and mind say to me, you know, those are my people. You know, this is my tribe. Uh, these are folks who I want to pattern my life after. These are folks who were handed the baton. They handed the baton on to somebody else, which allowed me to eventually get it. Uh, and so not as you would expect a, a great work in moral theology or ethics, which is my field, uh, but just a, a biography about a great woman of God uh, that has incredibly encouraged me. Uh, I know that all of the, the listeners of this podcast, regardless of your specialty, uh, what you do in ministry, layperson, vocational uh, minister, pastor, whatever it is you do, uh, I could guarantee you that you would be encouraged uh, by reading this volume. And the book is entitled what? The Bold Evangelist, The Life and Ministry of Selena Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon, Uh, by Priscilla Wong. Thank you for that recommendation, Dr. Jones. That's our podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have a minute, go to Apple Podcast and give us a rating and review. Have a great day.